don't you shimmy your goddamn little tail at me, you dirty little goblin boy. <laughs> anyway. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Terminus. <laughs> uh, Terminus After Dark, to be uh, to be precise. And we've got the third mic with Wilkins uh, bashing his head against my laptop periodically. Say hi, Wilkins. And, of course, we have uh, the black metal guy, the, 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 the other host, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's me, the black metal guy. So uh, today we have a Danny Filth request uh, of a record that I'm actually super excited to talk about. Uh, it's one that we have mentioned on the show a few times, um, but frankly, it's got so few like meaningful parallels to other records. It's kind of hard to talk about, you know, in any other context. Um, and uh, since I think I don't think you would mind us saying it. This is actually coming from uh, the drummer of Galicia, who we've uh, covered a couple times. Uh, I was talking to him about this last night, and uh, he talks about this one being just a, a seminal part of him getting into extreme metal, uh, which is interesting, uh, just because this has become a record that's. Uh, waxed and waned in its hidden gem status over the years. Uh, and we are talking about Lycathia of Flames Elveniferous, originally released on Obscene Productions in 2000. Um, so this is a record that I have a ton of experience with. Uh, I think I first heard this record when I was about 14, so around 2004. Um, and that was really sort of the zenith of Lycathia Flames' popularity. Uh, in the mid-2000s, this was a very standard record to have listened to if you were a serious death metal guy. And it seems like over the years, um, it goes in cycles every few years. Uh, it sort of dips back down into the underground a new generation of people discover it and promote it a bunch. Uh, that definitely got boosted in 2011 when the remastered version came out. Um, and it just kind of goes through those cycles. Uh, but growing up, for me at least, uh, this was always considered just a... I mean, really almost a part of uh, weird death metal canon. This was uh, a, a standard thing that serious death metal people would listen to, and now it's become kind of a kind of a secret handshake uh, for people who are really in the know. Uh, Weirdly, I think um, it's getting some attention again now. Uh, when I was searching for the record, I found that it's it's actually been reviewed quite recently uh, by two channels, which are, if you can believe it, uh, smaller than us. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, um... It's a record people are constantly rediscovering, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like people will probably be reaching more for things like this now, now that, like, uh... Now that, like, Argos Lent is, like, one of the most influential bands or something, mm -hmm. and that they're, like, looking for anything like that. So, you know, now people are into McGauss or the, um... What's the one that, like, a band that has, like, kind of like like Athea Flame, right? Like, I feel like Intestine Ballism was mentioned in the same breath as them back yeah, in the day, right? Yeah, Intestine Ballism, at least as far as, like, sort of obscure, melodic death metal that isn't Melodeth from that era. Um, Which, yeah, and I had not even heard the name Intestine Ballism till uh, that band fucking... Oh, Dungeon Serpent reference them yeah. or something. Oh, that was a that was a big hitter for like the uh, the Anus and the Dark Legions archives crowd mm -hmm. back in the day. Mm -hmm. 
so a little bit of a little bit of background info just for people who aren't familiar. So like Hathia Flame uh, came out with Elvenifris in 2000. It is the band's only release ever. Um, originally, this band was called Appalling Spawn. Uh, and under that name, they released a demo and a full length, uh, which you can listen to. Uh, they're very good, but much closer to normal death metal. But you can see kind of some of these strange melodic ideas coming out, but they would only come to full development uh, when they changed the name to Lycathia Flame, uh, which was prompted by their original drummer leaving and uh, Tomas Korn coming in. Uh, to become the new drummer, and he is crucial to the sound of this band, which is why I make special note of it. Um, after Elvenifris, uh, it took, uh, as far as I understand, it took a couple years for it to really pick up steam. It was released on Obscene Productions, which at the time was a fairly well-known death grind label for Eastern Europe, but uh, it took time to trickle over to the West. But when it did, it was a big deal, and it just spread like wildfire yeah. through word of mouth. Um, this was also sort of pre, I mean, the internet was important then, but in like, if this came out in 2000, right? I mean, well, if this came out in 2000, really, the internet wasn't all that important yet. Yeah. Like, I mean, people were downloading, before, yeah, yeah, people were downloading stuff. There were like message boards and forums and shit, right? But like, mm-hmm. it was, um, it was before peer to peer, like completely, uh, filtered into like the extreme metal scene. So, it was a, definitely a weird era. But it, yeah, certainly far from the, I mean, yeah, like far less internet than in, you know, when we were coming up and way, way, way less internet than today. So, it's not, it's, we're, it's not infinite accessibility. It's a time when, like, something could come out and then in five years be forgotten by people because they literally don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it really wasn't forgotten. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I just you know, mean in terms of it taking time, taking time to get places. Yeah, it, t- it took a while to percolate. But then by the time, you know, Soul Seek stuff like that came around, this was just a standard thing that everyone had. Uh, mm-hmm. it, once file sharing caught on, everybody had a copy of Elvenifris. Everybody knew that it was fucking awesome, and everybody wanted to talk about it for years. Um so, Elvenifer's release in 2000, and then basically Lycathia Flame, who at one point like rebranded themselves as just Lycath, um, kept promising they were working on new material. Ooh. Uh, and it became like an Anada or a Necrophagia situation. At one point, Tomas uh, like injured his Achilles tendon really badly, so there were some issues with drumming. Peter, the vocalist, was uh, he said that he was stepping back from doing vocals. He had played guitar as well as doing vocals in Appalling Spawn. A lot of weird lineup stuff that's kind of hard to track. Yeah, um, the funny thing is that the last lineup it shows us is just the two guys, Petra and Tomas, and they, mm-hmm. uh, um, and yet there are actually, so you might think, and it just has a picture of them, so you might think this is mostly a two-man collab, but they actually had, like, a, yeah, there's just this massive revolving door of very brief members, mm-hmm. and the record actually has four people playing on it, right? Yeah, and those are two guys who were in kind of the, the main incarnation of Appalling Spawn. Got, it, got um, it. But then again, supposedly this record was all written by Petr. Uh, it's 
it's it's hard to tell. Like, there's not a ton of information about Lycanthia out there. I mean, you can kind of dig up some old interviews and stuff, mm-hmm. but that's a little bit spotty. I don't really know how much they were playing live, like if they were super active. I get the sense that this was a little bit more of a studio band, but it's, I, it's hard to tell. I see a chat guy in the comments saying he saw them a, a couple times in Prague as a teenager. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think they probably did. Teenager, so. I think they probably did some local gigging. I don't think they ever. I don't think they ever toured or anything like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, really, this and so over the years, you know, there's been all these ideas of you know maybe Lycaith is going to do something. Maybe they're not. Even now, the rumors are still out there that it's like well, maybe something will happen. I'm not getting my hopes up. I think it's probably not going to happen, but it's become a Duke Nukem Forever kind of situation. Um, so, Elvenifris, uh let's talk about this record because there's a lot to talk about. And I'm super interested in talking to you about it. So when originally we decided to cover this, I was really curious as to what your reaction was going to be. Uh, because I could see you, I could see you very much not liking this because this seems to run counter to a lot of the stuff that you like about extreme metal. So I want to explore that, but I also want to explore. This is your first time hearing this record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so. I I might have. Uh, you know, I remember there was a time when I was just like, you're a kid and you're fleshing out like what genres exist, and I was like, is there melodic grindcore? Yeah, yeah. I'm almost certain I would have clicked on... If there's any reason I didn't actually listen to this, it was probably just it being described as proggy or happy. Mm. Uh, But my guess is I would have checked it out at some point. Uh, But I have no memory of it. And if I checked it out, I probably just heard the major key melodies and the brutal death snare and was like, well, this is not what I'm looking for. (laughs) Yes, Mm. well, I'm interested in a couple of aspects. One being... um, I guess there's two main questions that I have, and I'll kind of present them mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, one, you've you've certainly heard about this record a ton from other people as well as me talking mm-hmm. it up over the years. So how does your expectation compare to the actual experience of listening to it? And second, how do you think it's different approaching this record as a really seasoned guy versus discovering it when you come up because i think Mm -hmm. that's super interesting because i'm a guy who this was a very early record for me listening to death metal and for you this is after years and years and years of listening to this music um and i think that you can get very different results uh either way that is very interesting those are both good questions well death metal guy um i think the yeah, so how is it different relative to expectations? Um, it's even more unique than I thought. <laughs> I think if I had to guess how it would have sounded, I would have guessed that it would be more like the uh, sugary or exuberant versions of Dorian kind of minor, more minor scale type stuff. You know, mm-hmm. sort of like okay. perky in the way that sort of stuff that's based on Iron Maiden can sound kind of perky, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe a little bit more like something in the, um, you know, melodically more like something in the Swedish Black Death or, uh, you know, sort of 
arrogant thrash black war mm-hmm. metal territory or just, right just um, more heavy metal in general yeah yeah so you know <laughs> you know sort of like bright bright versions you know bright versions of noble dorian scale melodies perhaps to the point of excess but i kind of figured i would i somehow figured i would have to i would almost certainly like it this is um, pretty this is pretty universally acclaimed. It's universally acclaimed more than that. I know that there is this grindcore thing going on there and I think, you know, one thing that can put me off of some of the more uh say like the last the Grenadier record or something like that or mm-hmm. why I don't actually listen to Argosland all the time or whatever, right? Is that sort of like sugar sweet kind of thing. Uh yeah. And you know, with with especially with bands influenced by those, it gets way. Our, you know, our Gosselin themselves are not so much like that, but certainly with things influenced by them and in that vein, it just gets way too much, and it yeah, just it just sounds weak. It's right? a sarcastic uh, effect. It gets yeah, striated. It gets smoothed yeah, out. Yeah, with everyone who I guess everyone on the patron show know, has heard me say that a million times, right? Mm-hmm. But like. I guess I knew that because it had a real grindcore influence. If you know that something is like super elaborate melodies and is 50 minutes long and has a real grindcore influence, you assume that there's going to be some incredible density and uh, attack to it, right? Mm -hmm. That whatever's going on in the melodic department, it's going to be done with a lot of force and with a certain kind of rhythmic dynamism uh, and spontaneity that's often missing from sort of highly uh from certain kinds of like ornately melodic music Mm -hmm. so i had good expectations i guess it was even more unique than i thought in the sense that like i'm not sure i realized how much brutal death it would sound like like this is specifically like brutal grindcore or whatever right um and you know that's both in terms of the tonality of the drums and the vocals right the vocals Mm -hmm. are primarily gutturals uh maybe entirely gutturals i mean um there's some singing at times but Mm -hmm. i think right yeah there's some there's some clean vocals and some spoken word but there's no like uh black metal shrieks or anything yeah there's no alternating guttural and high or anything like that no shouting um so maybe that was a surprise um and also what was going on with the guitars which was like uh I mean, the dominant tonality of the record is, like, major key. Mm-hmm. And, like, not like the kind of um, uh, aggressive... Well, it's a very aggressive record in a certain ways, but not the kind of, say, like, warlike, uh, warlike Indo-European drone major key that you get in something like Astrophase or Druidk. Yeah, there's and, a, and it's not a, like power metal. It's not very heavy metal, really at all. I would say. No, it's really not heavy metal. That's a very aside from the fact that it's like fancy, right? Mm-hmm. This is certainly not punk music. Um, although the energy kind of survives. It's it's not really. It doesn't have its head up its ass either because there is that implicit. It is an implicit punkiness, like some of the best 90s black metal, even when if it doesn't sound that punk, right? Like Immortal. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like Pure Holocaust is, is it's not, it's in, you know, it's not the, punky at all. The essence but, of punk flows through it, though. Yeah, there's an economy to it and things like that, yes. Uh, so this is, yeah, this record's just like pretty fucking wild, which yeah. I appreciate. Uh, and the other thing about the major capabilities, yeah, they are just conventionally bright, happy, major key melodies. 
However, there's a lot of great texturing in the chords that uh, um, makes them more, gives more emotional, uh, emotional texture and depth to those uh, chords, and that increases the tension and heaviness. Uh, and there are also a lot of, and there's also just a, um, so yeah, sometimes they just will be playing bright major, jangling bright major chord progressions. At other times they are playing, they might be playing those kinds of melodies, but with just like, uh, you know, just uh, really intense death metal trem runs, right? And mm -hmm. that's going to sound heavy and and sort of aggressively exuberant, no matter you know, even as, no matter how, um, you know, happy the melodies are. And then, as you point out, and we'll, you, you know, as you made sure to note in your notes, and as we're certainly, we're going to talk about with one example at least, the, the music is not, um, people coming to this now from the tradition of, like, candy death metal or friendly cat black metal or whatever are going to latch on to certain... You know, if the wrong people get a hold of this, they're going to latch on to, like, five parts of it mm -hmm. and replicate those and that are sort of the most characteristic and cheery and poppy and whatever. But the there's obviously yeah. unique parts yeah. of it. And that, that's true, too. But there is plenty of dissonance and plenty of uh, contrasting minor key melodies and... Uh, you know, in part because they're constantly shifting root notes. Mm -hmm. There are, like, actual chord changes under the riffing. And so, you know, they could play three major key riffs in a row, and if they're moving them around in this chromatic way, that's still going to have a, a, you know, a grind and a heaviness to it. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the mm -hmm. things you are seizing, just to rewind slightly, to give greater context... Um, this is a record probably more than almost anything we've covered on the show so far that stands really just outside of other reference points. This is one of those things that really is just itself in whole cloth. It's uh, it's such a wild, isolated lightning in a bottle thing. The comparisons we're going to have to make to other shit is going to be really far flung because there's really nothing like this before it and there hasn't really been anything like it after it um th and i i think you're right especially you know looking at both of our notes i think that the primary stuff here is coming from outside of metal completely however it is built completely with brutal death technique and vocabulary um which is what makes it so strikingly unique. It is completely within the technical vocabulary of brutal death metal, but it seems like every creative idea that went into it is coming from outside the style itself. Uh, it's it, yeah. it, it's very strange. Um, and uh, additionally, yeah, so there is a tendency from a lot of people who haven't really studied this record or have just kind of seen it in passing is to refer to this as, you know, the, like the, usually with enthusiasm, but it's still incorrect. The happy death metal record, yes. which is, which is okay. True in an extremely broad sense, 
but it does not capture like a 20th of what's going on here. Um, no, and you know, it's not a light or trivial happiness. It's not the triv it's not the trivial happiness you get when you've, you know, you've like uh, when you bo- get extra when, mozzarella sticks on it. Yeah, accent, when you've you know? when you've boofed your second chai matcha latte and you're you got a promotion to uh, head of HR. Yeah. What well, one thing that mm. I would like to say that I think is so cool about this is so unlike most metal, this is something that dwells primarily or at least substantially in sort of positive emotional wavelengths, but it makes an effort to articulate shades of positive emotion. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. You know, in tendency, people... In, there are a lot of shades of emotion here. Yeah, like creatively within extreme metal and the kind of people who are into extreme metal, yeah, we tend to have very intricate thoughts about negative emotions, but we generally don't reflect that on the other side, you know, that positive emotions have equally as much nuance to them. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that shading in here, which I really like happy metal tends to be very primary color. This is not, there is, there's a nuance and a depth to the sort of positive emotion expressed here because I mean, the, the album sort of lyrically and ideolo- ideologically is about a sort of spiritual journey of becoming. Oh, oh, yeah. this is completely uh, cool wizard music. Oh, yeah. And it is cool wizard music that is clearly, you know, connected to a spiritual quest. Uh, it's, you know, um, yes, it is cool wizard music and it is, uh, oh gosh, you said something else, uh, clever there that I was going to say um, build on but I, I can't remember what it was so it'll come back to me in a second um, but uh, okay so well well, while you're getting that so let's think about well, let's wait, re- real quick the other thing I maybe this will bring me back to it the other thing I wanted to do was um, oh yeah like shades of positive emotion um, oh yeah it's not sentimental you're like, right it's not it's not um you know, it's, like, one reason I hate that Grenadier record is they call themselves Sentimental Death Metal, and I'm like, damn right. I didn't know you um, hated that record. I thought it was pretty fun. <laughs> I think I've decided I hate it. I've decided I hate it. There are obviously good riffs on it and whatnot, but, like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't care. Um, it's, um... Yeah, it's it's interesting, like, especially if you, like, read all the lyrics and stuff, because it's got a uh, a very strange sort of, like... Uh, like authentically Christian undertone, but with a lot of like sort of serious Eastern mysticism tucked in there as well. However, it's not humanistic in that very sort of saccharine modern way. It's interesting. And, 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 you know, some of the the sentiment off sentiment is often conduct. It's from a distance, right? There's a kind of nostalgia, or a melancholy longing, or a kind of, um, uh, or a sugarcoating and idealization of things. Um, and this is just very immediate. Um, it just is what it is. Yeah, it's... Uh, It's not lingering over its positivity or fetishizing it, neither is it positive about stuff that exists in some, um... Uh, I don't know, um, you know, in some, like, exterior place, 
right? It's not being positive about the past or positive about what could have been or positive about, uh, you, you know what I mean? No, yeah, it's not, it, 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 it is not a, <laughs> it is a record with a lot of good feelings. It is not a record about feeling good about yourself. Mm-hmm. It is a record about being good. It is a record about goodness. It's not a record about feeling proud of yourself for 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 being good and accomplishing your goals. It sees goodness as a state of being that is something that is achieved and something that is uh you know that one has to strive for and to struggle through to 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 get to that place. Like the lyrics have a tendency to be kind of ingrishy, but there's actually like remarkably powerful moments on it. Like uh I've I've really loved the the final stanza of uh, Shine of Consolation that goes um you even do not know that your home is elsewhere. Inhospitable lands you have called your home. Why can't you search for a home with me? Why do your ears not hear the call of home? Perhaps it's too gentle for them. Which is, that's interesting. It, it, you know, there's, there, there is a soul, there's a whole sort of idea there, you know, the idea of like a message of goodness being too gentle for the average person's ears, like uh, we, we become so numbed and sort of inoculated to the human experience that we find ourselves unable to even access these kinds of higher virtues. Have you um, become so numb you can't feel it there? All you want to do is uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and be less like and be more like me and be less like <laughs> You, you get what I'm getting um, at. Bro. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm not making fun of you. I just had to do the Lincoln Park. Um, um, yeah, no, but but that is interesting uh, because it has. Can't this... you see that you're smothering me, <laughs> controlling <laughs> sometimes, afraid <laughs> to lose control. Um, um, oh, yeah, but God. I. So so it's interesting because there's ways to Wait, do like. Can I also respond directly to the actual thing you were saying, oh, which yeah, was um, uh. Um, wait, wait. Oh God. My, my brain is bad. I'm hungover. I, I'm like thinking clearly, but slowly today. That's the hangover. <laughs> well, don't um, interrupt with going. the fucking Lincoln Park and you'll be able to keep your train of thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but all the fans are thanking me. <laughs> no, but, uh, so it's interesting sort of like how this threads a sort of needle ideologically where it represents a sort of like, in a, a very broad sense, a sort of humanistic perspective or sort of a moralist perspective of good but it never really moves into like moralizing territory. And I think the, the essential concept is the idea of goodness as a goodness as a location one can occupy spiritually rather than a, a trait, you know, it is a place you have to stay or you have to move toward, you know, it, it, it turns the, uh, the, the, the moral or ethical value of a person as part of a spiritual journey. And I think there's something really powerful about that idea uh, that is very sort of like traditionally Western and religious in a certain way, but basically forgotten now. Like that would be a very sort of old Christian perspective. See it as, I'm not quite sure I get the distinction you're drawing, but you said like see it as a... Um, is the idea that it's not, there's a... That, that, that goodness is not an inherent trait that sprouts up from within you, but it is something to attain. Well, yeah. mm, 
No, I think a lot of people think that, you know, like, I mean, you know, we are innately, right? I mean, like the equivalent, like, you have a fallen nature and you have to secret, like, there's some potential of goodness in you, sure, but you have a fallen nature and you have to redeem it, right? That's the whole thing where, like, you're I think, born. I think a lot of people think that they think that way, but I think a lot of people see... Uh, see, see things like goodness or evil as uh, a sort of like inherent state of being hmm. um, rather than something that is what about achieved. the constant what about the constant effort to like reflect on and critique your own privilege right that's like a very <laughs> that is a or to like undo your supposed mental colonization or whatever right this is like that except, kind of like except that's not goodness that's social proof <laughs> right however right so there's like a debate about what goodness is but you know what i mean right that there's this like the struggle for goodness is deeply built into how people think of themselves right that's why like when a when a a person like who's deeply embedded in these modern ways of thinking senses themselves having a bad thought right you're taught that like you become good by everyone's going to have bad thoughts and you're going to become good. Everyone's going to notice things they're not supposed to notice. And you become good by transcending that, right? You have to notice it, critique it, get past it, recognize it as part of your fallen nature. Um, you yeah, know, like, that sort of... I, like, like that seems very much like this constant movement. That's, that's part of the idea of progress as a way of being, right? You're constantly moving towards this receding destination. I see that, but I guess my argument would be that Elvenifer sort of, like, depersonalizes that whole process. It is not okay. about the self. Um, mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. there is a self that is moving toward this idea of good, but it is totally decoupled from... It is not to achieving goodness is not a matter of assuaging your personal insecurities or uh, you know positioning yourself in some sort of social way. There is a there is clearly like lyrically a a a, a codified idea of what goodness is, and it's it's based off of what seems to be a sort of like virtue ethics, um, but a, a very sort of traditional take on it. I recognize that distinction. I feel like maybe virtue, maybe like you're. You formulated it several different ways, and some of them make more sense to me than others. I think that way makes more sense. It's like, it. I think maybe what this record is saying is that goodness is something you are. That's an important part of virtue ethics, right? Like, that good. there's something very concrete about goodness. It's not a set of procedures to follow, right? But, Whereas the, the, the sort of modern or Protestant view is that there are procedures you can follow. Well, it's not um. it's it's not procedural, but it is a it is active. No, I, I get that it's a different kind of activity. Um, mm -hmm. You're saying it's like it's something that you. Um, yeah, well, it's different from being. It's different rather from being reflect. It's active rather than reflective, yeah, right? You, you you're cannot. constantly reflecting on. To, to be a good, rational, moral, modern humanist subject, you have to be constantly reflecting on yourself in relation to the moral law, right? In relation to, like, freedom and equality and all that. And you have to be um, continually 
subordinating, you know, you know, or like Kant would say, right, you know, is your individual maxim of the will consistent with the categorical imperative? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, or, but the, um, you, you have to be engaged in this sort of moral ratiocination and algebra all the time. Um, and it's, uh, this is much more based on, like, goodness can be like a character trait and it's also can be like a place and not a place in the sense of this like abstract ideal that we're trying to implement in the world right with that is a formula for happiness and peace and goodness right but this sort of like uh like literally like heaven <laughs> a yeah, place like yeah. a well, place like heaven or eternity or uh shambhala or whatever yeah, and there does and, there and seems... that a person can be like who possesses the virtue. Yeah, there's a struggle to possess the virtues or activate them, and that certain per people are virtuous and good, mm. right? And there also seems to be a, a a deep importance placed on like to embody these virtues, not not merely to practice them, but a, a sort of personal transformation in becoming these things. I mean, like, like you've got the song title, To Become Shelter and Salvation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are these are mm -hmm. not merely acts that you practice. You fully embody, you, you give your identity to these virtues, and you uh -huh. experience a sort of transcendence as a I, result. Yeah, I, I get that. You're also, you're sort of... Um there's maybe an idea that like whereas in the modern view you have a sort of abstract moral schema that's by definition unable to be realized in the mm -hmm. world right it's like this asymptote you're constantly struggling towards right even if we attain utopia utopia will never fully be utopia we always have to keep going to the struggle sessions you have to attain attend the commune meetings mm -hmm. um things like that the um the opposite might be that this, like, say, I think you're making a lot of comparisons, say, like medieval or very traditional Catholicism, right? Yeah, or naturally. Like, uh, <laughs> or, or say to, but I think the other reference point would be like Buddhism, right? Oh yeah, or definitely. More definitely. ascetic, ascetic Hindu stuff. And well, that's those are clearly, clearly sort of aesthetically what this is patterned off of. Yes, yeah. And you so basically those, have the Buddha in that sigil on the cover. Yeah, there's Buddha stuff. Yes, there's also references to like Egyptian mythology a lot. Uh, sort of like, um, and basically like, you know, in these ideas, right, there's a notion of perfection that one can, perfection that one cannot just sort of, that like perfection is a valid ideal and that one can basically attain it. Right? Yeah, not yeah. not in the way that God or the gods or Buddha can, right? But like that one that you know, it's an attempt to embody a kind of perfection and become more than more than just a person, as you're saying. Yeah, to become, there is you know, ultimate completion. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me, and I mean the lyrics to that song definitely sort of confirm uh, confirm that. And one thing that you point out in the notes, and <laughs> this got really fucking heady for this death metal record, but one thing that you said about, you said in the notes that I thought was very important is the idea that uh, within happiness, within legitimate happiness and legitimate positive emotion is the idea of vulnerability, of a, mm -hmm. a strength in to open yourself to these feelings. 
which is obviously given my personal life right now, something I've been considering fucking a lot. Um, but and it's interesting, like with that perspective, because that's even reflected in other lyrics in uh, "Bringer of Elveniferous Flame." Uh, you have the passage, you know, "His eyes shall fill you with energy; his eyes shall permeate behind your walls, and your stronghold shall crash. You will stand mm. before him in your nakedness, and maybe then, for the first time, you will see it yourself." Which is uh, that's extremely Christian leaning compared to a lot of the stuff on this record, but. They're acknowledging it itself, you know, the idea of sort of a, a, a profound metaphysical vulnerability to access perfection, you know. I think perfect, there's probably yeah. Buddhist stuff that also sounds like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, was guess, I was just saying kind of in the way that it's personalized in this sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, this exterior figure. Through him, of a yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, we, I was expecting we were going to do all the philosophy stuff on the back end, but that was pretty. That was pretty. Well, cool. we can we can loop back to that. I well, mean, no, it's, it, well, when, it's when interesting we that it's that it's a record that provokes this kind of stuff. It's one of the things yeah. that makes it so unique. Um, yeah, um, and you know, the TD, TLDR is like it's 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 happy, but it's not gay. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's um, you know, it's it's and, fucking and, extreme, and yeah. it's 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 really not poppy. This is an extremely, like, this is a very inaccessible record, and many people who might be drawn, it does not, in fact, deliver hook riffs in any way, right? People who might be drawn to, uh, you know, this more fruity kind of black and death metal now will actually have no time for this because they literally don't have the attention span uh, and they are not inter- simply aren't interested in music that's organized around uh, series of phrases rather than verse and chorus. Yeah. And um, uh, well, with that, should we start playing stuff? No, we should end the review right now. <laughs> there, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Sorry, guys, you gotta, you got to experience it to uh, really understand it. And, you know, only when you've gazed into his eyes will you then realize. <laughs> uh, but, no, let's go. So let, let's fucking listen to... Um, I've got some reference points for this, but I'll bring them in when they seem relevant. And uh, let's listen to the first track. Or uh, the, not, not the first track, but the first... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so let's let's talk about Bringer of Elveniferous Flame. Uh, this is a pretty good. Uh, this is the first track I ever heard by the band, so it's one of my favorites, and it is a really good sort of like paradigmatic track for the album. It's very representative of the whole thing. Um, so I'm gonna listen to. We're gonna listen to sort of the back half of the song, where they're gonna sequence through a lot of the. Uh, original riffs in the first half but uh, modified in a different sequence uh, different numbers of repetitions but this will be a good baseline for people to listen to so as you're listening to this try to consider you're going to be hit with a lot of major key melodies that are very unfamiliar to extreme metal but what do they actually sound like to you like, can you think of anything that you've heard out there that this compares to? Because it's not coming from within heavy metal at all.
this album's so fucking cool, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so realistically, in terms of points of comparison, uh, you came up with some in your notes that blew my fucking mind that I hadn't even oh, considered, cool. but I think you're completely a billion percent correct about. Um, but for me, it's like a lot of these melodies across this record sound almost more like, it's almost more like world music stuff than anything in rock or metal. It's like you get like an Enya vibe off some of this stuff. I mean, these sort of like, ecstatic major key melodies don't resemble any of the sort of metal or punk configurations we're used to. It's it's nothing in rock music. It's nothing in... It's it's really nothing in the vast majority of Western music apart from certain aspects well, of classical tradition, and I think that's more structural in nature. Uh, I, I would actually say that some of those riffs are kind of... The big ones there, da 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 yeah. da and the thing that runs up to it, the the more sort of uh, the uh, the thing that's kind of hard to hum, right? It's not the first that like release riff that you were describing as so like you know uh, w- w- ecstatic or mm-hmm. whatever, right? It has you know the it has the build up to it, da 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 da. I mean that those two really do sound and work like classical music. That sounds like uh, there is a thoroughgoing classical influence here, like on the most sort of patrician black metal stuff of the time, which we can get to in a second. But like, it's but like here, I don't know. You know, stuff like William Tell, like a cliche example would be like William Tell Overture, or mm-hmm. like uh, or the eighteen twelve Overture. Um, there's a, or even like fucking, ah, oh, you know, I, God, I missed the big one, the Ode to Joy, right? Yeah, the, the extremely that is a, glossy stuff that we don't even think about anymore, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, like, those are all, well, William Tell Overture is maybe a little bit glossy, yeah, but like, but like, you know, 1812 Overture and Beethoven's Ninth, you know, you can't knock that. No, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's great music, but it's so subsumed into the zeitgeist of car commercials and stuff, we barely recognize oh, it as, like, music anymore. I, I guess, no, I guess that is kind of true. And also in metal, it's just not the first thing you're thinking about for, like, classical music. But you could also think about, like, you know, like, I mean, uh, classical music proper before romantic, and even romantic stuff is much more major than it is minor key. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, like it almost seems like the major key is this sort of construction of, uh, you know, 18th century aristocratic music and, or eh, it's in Baroque stuff too, but like, you know, it's, it's very sp- specific to classical stuff. If you listen to medieval stuff, that's all minor key or weirder. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, sort of um, polyphonic. Yeah, yeah, like um, it's kind of um, it's uh, yeah, weird things that we couldn't define as major or minor. Um, the uh, so the major key in some ways is like it's like the default we think of it as, but it's kind of like more recent. But th- this stuff sounds very like major key runs in like say yeah Beethoven's ninth right that's mm-hmm. extremely happy that is maybe the happiest melody there is and yet it is 
very strong and yeah, very it's, glorious. It's right? very powerful. And yeah. that's one of the most important things Lycathia brings to the table is taking major key melodies that in some cases are so simple and broad, we would mm-hmm. probably just discount them immediately and mm-hmm. infuses them with such intensity and such power that it just, it, it, it really, listening to this record in a way can kind of change your perspective of the use of major key. It, it opens up yeah, a possibility yeah, yeah. space that like well, it almost reopens no access to, you know? Yeah. In, in or, metal, um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in met, no, almost no one's access in metal. Yeah, and you know, like, uh, yeah, what was? I, I just had another uh, thought of another good example, like classical music example of this. Um, oh, um, the uh, what is it? Uh, it's um, yeah, it's Handel's Messiah. Mm-hmm. That is very major key and extremely badass. Um, and the lyric, I mean, even the lyric, the lyrics are like excerpts from the Old Testament and shit. So not really my cup of tea, theoretically, but they, the lyrics are also very sort of, you know, life affirming and powerful, mm-hmm. irrespective of theology. It's just badass. Um, uh, the, um, it's uh so yeah it belongs to this whole tradition of sort of like manly affirmative major key sort of classical stuff but at the same time um there really are certain parallels for it in uh well in metal and in extreme music or get in weird guitar music more broadly right mm-hmm. so should i get into that now oh yeah sure and maybe i can actually highlight that maybe i'll do it i'll like roll it out bit by bit because we've got I've got a couple samples now mm-hmm. and that and that like unless you had anything else you wanted to say specifically about bringer uh, no uh bringer is just uh, like we're definitely going to be getting into a lot of intricate structural stuff a little bit later mm-hmm. yeah. but but definitely something important certain structural conceits constantly pop up in this mm-hmm. record uh, one is call and response riffs, like mm-hmm. rapid alternation between two riffs. In a lot of cases, it's one major and one minor, creating mm-hmm. like really sort of grinding contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is sort of uh, chopping up and hybridizing riffs. Uh, we've been talking about that a lot on the past few episodes, the mm-hmm. idea of having an A riff and a B riff and then a C riff that is two parts of those crammed together, um, mm-hmm. which is starting to slowly become a standard part of extreme metal riff technique. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's mm-hmm. always been around, but you know, now it's starting to get more established. But ever remember Elvenifris is 2000. Like this is so ahead of the curve. They have that as like a standardized part of their writing methodology 20 years before people really start picking it up. Uh oh, and uh the other I guess the other thing is that um just as an aside, in terms of actual influences from within metal, basically the only stuff that's going into this that I can like readily identify is Cryptopsy and Cataclysm. Uh, Cryptopsy is by far like the biggest one. Apparently, they would often cover Cryptopsy songs when they played live. Uh, 
uh, Tomas is actually in the YouTube comments for this video, um, mm-hmm. where he says that he specifically wanted his snare tone to sound like flows on Blasphemy Made Flesh. So <laughs> it's very interesting. And then we can kind of trace it to that idea of Cryptopsy using strange major key passages in their music. Um, of course, in, in their world, it's to make it sound sicker and more deranged <laughs> by having perky major key mm-hmm. stuff pop up in these horrible stories of murder. But it's interesting how they've drawn so substantially from the well of cryptopsy, cataclysm, and sort of this Quebecois death metal sound and come out the other side with something so radically different. Oh, God, yeah, these guys are so chill. Somebody comments, Snare sounds like the one on Blasphemy Made, made Flesh by Cryptopsy. I love it. And uh, <laughs> there's it, Tomas replies, yes, I was trying to copy this sound as much as possible. Smiley face with a nose. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's about the most, like, friendly European thing you can imagine. Um, That's also how you know he's in his 40s. Uh, when you're in your 40s, you do your, uh, your emoticons with a nose. Mm. People mm. have actually, apparently they've done studies on that. That's a thing. You the take nose your, gets you dropped t- at one point. <laughs> you take you, you take your time. You do the nose. It's um Not like these fucking Zoomer snowflakes, <laughs> man. Not bothering to put the nose. They just, do the, the, they just do the smiley face with a single parenthesis. <sighs> Not it's cool. um, uh, but the, um... But yeah, so in terms of other sort of... Right, so you cannot search for anything. Yeah, if you want like the basic death, brutal death structures coming from cryptopsy and cataclysm. Other than that, it's very hard to find direct influences or whatever in death metal. Uh, mm-hmm. What you can look for though is stuff that is analogous and that this is sort of uh, a part of the same moment as. So the first of those would be um, Ackercock, like mm-hmm. to a degree that is, um, I mean, really significant. Uh, so, um, this is less than a year later than the first Akrakok record, Rape of the Bastard Nazarene, that's late 99, um, and, uh, the second Akrakok comes out just after this, um, and they're both using brutal, specific early brutal death technique and composition, uh, and sound quality to make music that has more in common with black metal. Obviously, like with Lycathia, it's not specifically mood, right? There wasn't very much black metal. There wasn't any black metal that sounded remotely this positive at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but much more um, but more in terms of like, okay, you have music that's based on heavily atmospheric, that's based on uh, serious spiritual and ideological conviction, that is that uses a lot of texture and melody and it's drawing on classical music and things like that right um there's more direct there's very little there's little to no direct black metal riffing influence on this um Ackercock actually does use black metal riffs mm-hmm. um uh but another parallel between them is that uh many of Ackercock's black metal effects we've pointed out are based on goth um and they're, they're like, actually not BM guitar technique. And similarly, uh, Lycathia is very open to uh, non-metal guitar technique, which we'll get into more shortly. The other yeah. thing, with within extreme metal properly, you know, you mentioned later in the notes that, like, they probably influ- are influenced by symphonic BM. 
Mm-hmm. That's got to be true. Just like there was nothing else with this level of classical influence and ambition at the time. Yeah. <laughs> right? It has to be true. And, you know, one of the dudes is wearing a, a, a Dodam's Guard shirt in the picture and stuff like that. So, that, and in terms of like specific things from that time, maybe it's just on my brain because of the Furton review we did last week. But the, uh, you know, I've been listening to all those Nagelfar records again. Mm-hmm. And I went back to Hunengrab and Herbst, Herbst and now. <laughs> There's, like, one really awkward track on it that I just couldn't get into when I was younger, but now I'm just like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> so that barrier to entry has been removed, and now I just I really like that record. And the, you can hear in the outro track I played to the last episode that uh, it's really on that record that sort of pagan, barbarian uses of major key get developed for the first time in BM, as far as I can hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and very thoroughly. So there's parts that basically just are Druk's Sunwheel, like seven years before they wrote that out, released that record. <laughs> um, and uh, you can hear it being informed by classical and folk, and they're using drone effects to give the melody a greater heaviness. And, you know, on the Nagelfar, it's going to have a bit more sort of uh, um, capital A aggression martial ferocity to it, sort of wild romantic passion. It's a little bit different from the kind of major key on here, Mm -hmm. but there's a similar interest in how do you do strong-sounding extreme major key stuff that's responsive to the way that classical music is very, and romantic music is very happy to shift between minor and major keys. Yeah, yeah. Um, So there's a technological... Yeah, yeah, so there's a technological development that's happening in the most sort of uh, noble strains of black metal that is also happening here. Um, uh, then finally, you know, let's get at the non, the extrinsic influence. Well, actually, eh, let's talk about that more after we've done these samples. So, um, so first I want to play this whole record has kind of a, a leitmotif or like, I guess you could say like a theme the funny thing is that, like, a certain thing, like, you play a first riff at the beginning and it's, like, most of the major riffs are made with pieces of it or it's continually coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Those early serpent, the first Serpent Column record does that in a really thorough way where there's, like, three or four germinal melodies. Um, Beethoven's Fifth does that where it's, like, you know, almost the first five notes of it spits out the whole rest of the symphony. Mm-hmm. Um this is quite different from that in that, like, the, the, the this riff, which you could call the Elvinephorus theme or something, mm-hmm. it recurs in a lot of different guises throughout the record, but it's almost completely distinct from every other riff that happens, including many of the biggest ones. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very, it is designed to stand out in a very distinct way. Yeah, so let's listen to the, and it immediately sets the kind of Eastern atmosphere, this part of this. So let's uh, listen to the first 50 seconds of the record on uh, Land Where Sympathy is Air.
Yeah, so a little bit, uh, a little bit curvy sword, a little bit snake charmer. <laughs> um, but what's so interesting is that we were talking via text, and it's like this kind of predates almost everybody doing that. Yeah, the only precedent you could find was uh, this is actually earlier than Nile and Malik at Nile, and earlier than Orientalist Behemoth. Yeah, so so this is well before Behemoth would start to incorporate that stuff. And then for Nile, um, the only thing that would have been available... So Black Seeds of Vengeance would have just come out, like, like a mm-hmm. month before Elevenifera, so that's out. Amongst the Catacombs of Nefren Ka would be available, but some of the songs on this record trace back to 1998. So... Mm. I don't think it was probably a substantial influence. Like, as I said, the only thing that really predates it that immediately comes to mind is the first Melichesh record, which is in 96. Mm-hmm. And even as far as I know, that very first Melichesh, it's like not a lot of people listen to that one. I mean, they didn't really pick up steam until, you know, second, third record. It also got more conspicuously folky as they went on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I think it's quite likely that they just, you know, I mean, Eastern scales have been available to metal people since Led Zeppelin, right? So you can, yeah. like, it, it's entirely possible that they just, like, just, just did it on their own. It up. It, well, yeah, yeah. And, and it's also, it's very clear these guys are probably listening to a lot of, like, 70s prog again. So yeah. they could pull it from Yes or Genesis yeah. or something And like they probably listen to Middle Eastern music. Now, I mean, the riff itself is, like, obviously very troped. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's, you know, they, they clearly listen to, like, world mu- music from all over the world would be my guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's just been, like, a metal or prog guy thing you can do for a long time. Um, you know, they practice their weird scales. So, and, but they deliver that in a way that, so, like, riffs like that can often sound very silly. Uh, when they're not, um, not entirely the fault of the riff, just the cultural context around it, and the way that they, they're very often extreme. Yeah, it's not necessarily the fault of that style of scale or of Middle Eastern music. It's more like how it's being deployed. Um, this melody, you can hear it's it's a lot more authentic than your, like, your average slinky riff. It's not the most authentic, but more than that, um, it's everything they're doing with it. So they have... Um, they're using drone effect to increase tension and contrast, right? There are sort of, uh, there are these sort of like open strings or jangle in the riff itself. And then there's the bass, which is doing this really cool, like, uh, you know, almost like concrete winds esque kind of, um, non riff, uh, like a techno like yeah. oscillation. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Uh, and then every, immediately they'll, like, pull into, you know, you can use those Eastern scales to generate a lot of dissonance, which is why they're important for, like, good bands like Slayer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, <laughs> they're doing that. They have the more melodic thing above it, but then it'll, it'll peri- they'll periodically, like, just blast a tritone into it, right? Well, that's Um, that's something worth mentioning also is uh, in anticipation of this, I took took some time and I was looking at a mm -hmm. lot of tabs for this record. Mm -hmm. Some of the chord voicings 
on this fucking record are shit that I have never seen in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in metal guitar before. There's like chord shapes that are completely unfamiliar to me. Um, and there's also, um, I, I think some of it's kind of like jazz inspired, mm-hmm. um, and some of it's probably like flamenco. Some of it's probably Middle Eastern stuff. The Czechs like jazz. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also uh, one thing that's interesting is there are parts of this record that are extremely technical, but for the most part, it's actually not super tech from a guitar standpoint. But that it's not easy to play because there's nothing idiomatic to ex- death metal or extreme metal as a whole. Like, you would have to rewire your brain to play these riffs naturally just because the sorts of intervals they're playing with don't make sense on paper because you're just so fucking used to doing things the usual way. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, the other influence here is probably techno. Um, there's a pretty yeah. there's a goofy techno part used as the climax to um, uh, think the main riff sort of blends into a techno version at the end of On the Way Home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, there was something and just very strange happens there. If yeah. you were in Eastern Europe in the year two in the late '90s, you were probably going to raves. Yeah, you're. Gonna, um, and that's probably the disco tech. And, they they yeah. may have been on ecstasy, is what I mean, and that might explain <laughs> something about the mood of the record. Uh, <laughs> that would be but, sick if this was just. This is what happens when you do a death grind record while just rolling your fucking face off. <laughs> I, I would not be that surprised. Um, and they um, and you can hear it in like the in the bass line there. You can hear it in the drumming, which at the end of those phrases goes. Oh yeah, you know you get this like sort of uh, breakbeat symbol, jungle beat symbols. We'll, um, we'll talk more about the drumming later. It's mm-hmm. it's fucking incredible. <laughs> so so that's like kind of the main leitmotif for the record. Uh, but um, and, and so like yeah, how, how else do I get into these other influences? So that particular riff, um. No, let's just go to the next track, and then we'll get into the non-metal stuff. Or, or So, now that I've introduced that theme, we can play a place where that theme comes back, which is in um, On the Way Home. On the Way Home is another one of the calling card songs. It's probably parallel. It's basically parallel to Bringer of Eldenefer's Flame. Yeah. They sort of work in roughly. They're, they're structurally sophisticated. They have big, bold, major key melodies. It's like probably the kind of thing someone would sample to show you this band. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, it, it seems clear that certain songs, you, you can kind of tell the era that songs were made in, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, because there's old versions of Shine of Consolation and To Give out there, which are two of the shorter tracks. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing Bringer is another older one, and then On the Way Home is sort of the the the, the renovated, expanded idea of that archetype. Okay, cool. So, um... So, yeah, this is going to be, uh, yeah, it's a bit more involved. It's a bit more ing- aggressive uh, take on the same template. So um, I have um, ta- <laughs> the, the work you did on this, dude. 
<laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. I tried to diagram the... Did you see me attempting different kinds of notation and giving I, up? I was watching you in the Google Doc, and I was kind of cackling as you were just like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I could just picture you rewinding <coughs> in 20-second chunks trying to figure out what the fuck is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mapped it out on... <laughs> Maybe we should print this in the in the... We should honestly print this in the comments or in yeah, the sure. description. Yeah, no, because um, it's going to be way easier for people to like read along with the, yeah. the notes of the individual riffs yeah. and stuff. Yeah, well, I'll throw it in the description. I'll explain the notation after we do after we we play the sample. But um, basically, you know, ex I spent long enough listening to this to realize that it was impossible to diagram and then diagrammed it. <laughs> um, so uh, the one conventional thing they're doing here is that the default is four reps on almost everything unless otherwise noted. So let's get into it and we, and listen for the, well, it'll be very hard to miss when a version of the Elvin Effers theme pops up.
even as we were listening to it, I realized that, like, I think I hadn't finished the diagram and, like, I tried to put, I tried to change the notation to make it clearer for people and now I'm just fucking confused. (laughs) (laughs) Which maybe proves my point. But, um, I guess the really staggering thing about this passage is that none of it, you can hear that a ton of things happen and that, um... They actually all make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's... This is just incredibly intricate. Um, so you get, like... I, I, I've noted it, like, in terms of, like, A and B and C and riffs or whatever, mm-hmm. where, like, a, a prime marks a variation on a thing. So C, C prime, like, the prime's the little, like, you know, quotation mark yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and... Um, and I've outlined it with, if one part is being put under another, I've actually put it under the other part in mm-hmm. the notation. And I've, um, uh, and if they are next to each other, that means there's a kind of, like, two things that we've already heard are being, like, fused. Yeah. Um, so... It's tricky as fuck. <laughs> yeah. So it, like, it makes it makes perfect sense while you're listening, but it's so hard to write out exactly what's yeah, going on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure about the diagram through GB, and I might have to fuck with it at, at the end, like after we finish the segment. But um, <laughs> l- let me let me get to it. The other funny thing is that sometimes they introduce a variation on a riff before you actually hear the riff. Mm-hmm. Um, so so a right we either that. Jinga jing jing da jing da jing jing da ding da ding ding. Um so that is this sort of like it's a jangling major chord with drone strings. The drone strings are like, I don't know, you know, with like shoegaze chords like that, you're often droning like a a seventh of some kind. Uh mm-hmm. and um it's sort of often it's like a major seventh or something, so like uh it's actually only like one half step under the root. Uh at least that's what I remember from trying to figure out how those things worked when I was like 18. But the, um, uh, so and that, that's like a shoegaze drone riff that comes from like my bloody Valentine. And that's the one that fucked me up when you wrote that out. I was just like, Oh my God. The moment I saw that written down, I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. This is loveless. That's where a ton of this stuff is coming from. I just never thought about yeah. it because metalheads weren't fucking listening to Loveless in 2000. Dude. Well, so that's a, that's a thing is that it's, um, that's, well, I never got to that thing where you asked me like, what's it like listening to this? Like when you're, you know, not just when it's just came out and when you're first getting into metal, mm-hmm. but like yeah. now when you're seasoned, that's one difference is that although this certainly is ex- just about as unique as any music gets, I can hear more influences and more parallels. It doesn't sound as Swedish as as totally singular to me because I mean if I had heard this when I was 17 it would have sounded totally well I actually wouldn't have been because I was listening to the shoegaze stuff but yeah, like yeah, a yeah. bunch of other stuff about it probably would have seemed totally unique to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like like the snare and whatever. Well that was just the like crazy that. thing was realizing yeah like a lot of those more mid-paced sort mm-hmm. of open drone passages yeah that's mm-hmm. that's fucking loveless minus the delay. 
And it's 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 crazy yep. to think that just like having such a radically different production job makes that so difficult for someone like me to recognize. Well, well, it's not just the production job, although for sure, Loveless is very much a production-oriented record. It, it's also, um, but you know, there are all other shoegaze records that have that kind of jangle more prominently, mm-hmm. not obscured by delay. So the first record isn't anything, but MBV also has that to some degree. Um, it's the songs are all a little more sort of brooding and gothy. But you can hear sort of more harsh, jangling versions of the drone. Um, and the main influence for them, which, like Hathia, were probably also listening to, would have been Sonic Youth. Yeah. Um, so Sonic Youth had kind of, uh, certainly that kind of like, you know, they would use modified tunings and to, and they were very interested in drone effects. Uh, this is they a, would very, ha- a very culturally Euro record in a very distinct way, you know. Yeah, long before it was cool for everyone to say, like, I listen to, in fact, I'm on Rate Your Music. I listen to everything. Uh, I may be a metalhead, but I also enjoy the most obvious classics in every other genre. Um, there is especially country and hip-hop, but not country. Um, and the, uh, and the, and, and like, but yeah, so this was very broad, broad influences. Uh, and the other thing that is a reference point for this record that is influenced by My Bloody Valentine and by the shoegaze bands is Smashing Pumpkins, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, which I think, if it's not a direct influence here, it easily could be. And you can hear Smashing Pumpkins doing sort of uh, really heavy major key drone stuff on mm-hmm. songs like Silver Fuck. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, does the same thing. It does it more with raga scales, and it's actually way heavier than the, you know, like the, the Elvin Ephes theme sounds like a fucking, like, like you know, it's being played on kazoo compared to, like, the silver fuck riff. Yeah. Which is, like, instead of being, like, sounding Middle East or the snake, the, 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 uh, uh, silver fuck is, like, a raga scale, like, major tinged raga scale drone, and it's just, you know, that song is crushing. Mm-hmm. Um... But uh, also totally ecstatic and exuberant, and um, just makes when you like jump up and down hearing it. So those are that's a whole, and there are other shoegaze bands that you could associate with this, like the major key jangle stuff in Ride for sure. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, also of course, you know, Slow Dive sounds quite different, but you're, there will be similar chords. Yeah, Slow Dive is a little bit too kind of sweet and femme. it's yeah. it's mm, it's darker and folker. I would say is mm-hmm. the main distinction. Yeah. Um, it's oh, I, not don't, as, I don't say that to knock it. I, I love yeah. Dive. It's not as like, it's not as like, My Bloody Valentine has a kind of like loud rock and roll thing that is like not what Slow Dive was striving for. Yeah. Um, uh, the, um, but yeah, so there is, so there's one of the reference points. I mean, I, should I talk about this? We, I could play an MBV sample for people. Should I just do that before I, I get? I would the like rest to hear. I, I would like to hear it just because I clicked on it out of curiosity, and inside of two seconds, I was like, "Fuck." God damn it, it was right in front of me the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I checked through, um, you know, at least the beginnings of the tracks on Isn't Anything, too, at, but, and I checked through most of this record. This is the best, this is the best match for it. And this is also one of the heaviest My Bloody Valentine tracks. It's probably my favorite on Loveless. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Come In Alone, just the first minute or so. Mm-hmm. 
And like Elvin, and like Elvin Everis, uh, Loveless is one of those records that actually is as good as everyone says. You know, Th- that is true. Yeah, you can't you can't knock it. Um, it's I would love record. to be a contrarian, but no, it's just, it's it's that fucking good. But yeah, dude, yeah. no, it's, you're exactly right. I can't believe all that weird fucking drone jangle stuff was like right in front of me. Um, that's that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. I mean. The other thing about, like, and that's also more evidence for the notion that these guys were taking a lot of ecstasy. (laughs) Just like, damn, you know, like, uh, man, you know, we're in this band called Apollon Spawn, and, you know, we used to think that, like, fucking, um, having kind of, like, horned helmets and sick barbarian axes was really cool, but lately I just want to, like, be kind and help people. <laughs> it's it's funny how like if you go read appalling spawn lyrics, like they're clearly mm-hmm. trending toward like Athea Flame, but they're st- they're describing the ideas so much more aggressively. Like the first song on the appalling spawn record has Peter like saying "kill sadness" over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great the idea they've always been revolving around the same ideas but they were slowly learning the language That's that didn't, interesting. didn't involve murder as the way to communicate <laughs> um, I'm learning how funny. to I'm learning how to pet the rabbit without crushing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so that's so that so that that's that but then you know in terms of the structure you get like uh right after that you get the elvin Ephrus theme but it's not the uh it's it's not the whole you know it's yeah. or rather no that's what it is on this track god it's fucking confusing yeah yeah it's that basically it's not the as snake it appears version from the beginning as it appears on the snake track it's part of the Snake Charmer mm. riff. It's based on the second phrase of the album's first riff, mm-hmm. and that's expanded on. Um, and that's happening over the and My Bloody Valentine drone thing, right? The thing is that, that that like drone chord thing is so distinctive, it stands on its own as a riff, mm-hmm. and then just then there's this kind of like drop of the Eastern stuff over it. Okay, then the drone continues as a drone is wont to do. And, uh, and you get the, uh, you, you get like a sort of like full shoegaze chord progression, major chord progression being played out over the drone and it's getting its tension and heaviness in part from the drone. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just, you know, from the rhythm and from being well-selected chords, but the, um, then you get another, uh, B section. So... We get the Elvin Ephrus theme again over the same drone riff. Then we get C prime. So we get the chord, the shoegaze progression, but now it's over downbeat thrash. Then we get this sort of uh, slight, more uh, minor key, but uh, sort of more like more like spicy than aggressive minor key uh and it's a sort of like bar chord sliding sweeping bar chord thing it's almost kind of flamenco yeah it, it starts at like a dominant seventh or something I think, um i think there's like a lot of subtle south american stuff that permeates this record um especially in the drumming 
because um, Tomas Korn's style is clearly he's got inside Flo Monnier from Cryptopsy's drumming style, but there's so much sort of like ragged salsa and funk rhythm stuff that goes on. Like you pointed out earlier, he uh, like one of his like his identifying marker is that sort of almond break fill he likes to mm-hmm. do at the end of extended blast passages. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of his stuff, his scanning, is very, like, salsa-inspired, and it's just one of the really cool, weird cultural reference points of this music. But, yeah, I could definitely see flamenco, like, permeating all this stuff. Yeah, well, cool. So, yeah, um, so we get the... Um yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, and, you know, yeah, if he's a, such a good drummer, he's going to listen to drummer stuff like Santana or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. But the, um, okay. And then you get a uh, a thing that I'm calling E-prime because it comes in before you're getting the variation before the thing. Mm-hmm. And you get this weird call and response thing. There's a slow introspective part. And then you get, like, a uh, this kind of... Um, kind of a death metal riff um and that repeats twice and then a half a time and then the place <laughs> where that more death metal part would be happening suddenly we get e the full death metal riff um and this is it has call and response built into it uh so the first part is this kind of um uh really grinding dissonant corded part that sounds like it's being played backwards <laughs> um, this is one of many parts on the record that kind of remind me of Portal in this yeah. weird way. Um, there's there's uh, a subtle another. There's another band that like clearly has influences, but is totally unique. Yeah, right? there's like listening to this again with that in mind. There's definitely a, a subtle undercurrent of at least like an appreciation for like NYDM stuff, like Immolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's oh, that would make sense for sure. Executed in a really different way, but there's just these subtle things about the way they arrange chord voicings and stuff that remind me of that. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So, yeah, so you get this sort of, like, scronked-out chords, and then the ending of the phrase is this more like, you know, uh, this trem run, and that is the part that... <laughs> it's like the E-prime thing, the second part of the previous riff, of the intro riff, is phrase two of riff E. I just, it makes, it actually makes sense. It's just so complicated. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, the the mood here, this is one of the only parts that sounds like regular death metal. Like, that's like, it's a mode they'll pull out once or twice in a song. And, like, it's the only place where you get, like, here it sounds the most like kind of Swedish Black Death Spectrum stuff. Like this is kind of like At the Gates or Liars in Wait or Sentenced, which is mm-hmm. Finnish but Swedish secretly. Um, and, uh, you know, there's your kind of like Hessian firm dark metal riffing. And whoa, it's gone because it's time for more shoegaze. Um, <laughs> all right, that's F. And then you get through like, you go, it, it's slow again and you get like, through and they start working through a four-part chord progression and they get through three parts of it and then <laughs> bam um riff uh and so again they do the same thing where like the end of the phrase is actually the beginning of another one and they don't like there's just a whole they'll gesture towards a four-bar idea or whatever but then just like a new four-bar thing will start generated out of the end of the last one it's just continuous like 
one riff is flowering out of the last. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this one is kind of cashmere basically. It's the cashmere format. Um, and it's also call and response. And it uses the Elvin Ephraim theme as a turnaround. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's the... Except here, I think the, it, it's based on the... Um, here it's based on the first part of the Elvin Ephraim theme, which is not in the fucking song. <laughs> Like it's in it's it's in the first song on the record. Uh, it's it's not the same for if the start of the song. Uh, and again, there's this strange continuity going on. There's still the three to one ratio that the previous riffs suggested. Um, so you get three reps of this cashmere thing, and then the Elvin Ephraim theme, which is what the shoegaze how the shoegaze chord progression worked. Um, uh, and then there's a part of my notes that's confusing me, and let's just stop. <laughs> um, you know, it just occurred to me that it's like, now I'm just thinking of oh, these, this grab bag of reference points, because uh, you were talking mm-hmm. about electronic music. I'm betting that they were probably also like really into like early IDM stuff. They, these yeah, guys probably yeah, listened yeah. to like old Aphex Twin a lot. Oh, probably, yeah. Like, yeah. let's see, when was Selected Ambient Works? Uh, man, I always forget what year that is. That was 94. So, yeah, they had plenty of time to listen to Selected Ambient Works. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck, man? <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's like, so, and then I, I mean, was thinking, I guess he was, he was already, he had already done some of his more Aphexy stuff, too, which was probably also influencing them because of the breakbeat stuff. Yeah, but also melodically, there's going to be some of that in here, like that album, or um, I Care Because You Do, uh, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, the more melodic Aphex Twin stuff, mm-hmm. uh, with all the breakbeats and shit, where he was mm-hmm. doing you know something kind of more akin to drum and bass. Um, there's that, and then I was also looking it up, it's like, it looks like... You know, the obvious thing for Cryptopsy is going to be the first couple records, but Whisper Supremacy comes out in 98, like, as they're sort of writing this. Um, And that's where some of the really crazy breakneck structural stuff comes in, like the half repetitions of riffs before it snaps into something really abruptly. So that could be going on here. It's... But but the thing to emphasize is how contiguous this all sounds while you're listening to it. Yeah, so this is not random. I guess that's the impression I'm trying to give people. Uh, yeah, this is not it, like schizo tech death at all. It it's kind of the it's totally the opposite of that. It's less random than a number of things with simpler structures. It's uh, it, it's it's very close to how a romantic symphony works, which is like. You know, this is kind of the the use of um, and that use of symphonic structures as opposed to like symphonic orchestration or superficially classical sounding mm-hmm. stuff is starting to become more common. Well, in relative terms, it's starting to be done more uh, in bands like Nagelfar around this time. Yeah. Um, you can maybe, Dawn sort of does that, but those kind of work more like really elongated, just strange. Th- those just work very differently from uh, conventional songs. But like, 
some of the Nagalfar stuff really does have this kind of like A and B theme trade-off and transformation stuff going on. Yeah, there's um, there's this very kind of there there's something very structurally intricate yet like immediate and impulsive about these songs. Uh, something yeah. like highly organic. You know, it's like. Like, describing the shape of a tree's branch is, like, almost impossible to do verbally, but it makes perfect sense when you just look at it. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's the organic structure thing. That's a very good way of putting it. It's, that's uh, a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's well, well, I mean, I've always associated this record as being, like, very nature in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, in the yeah. way that, like, pagan black metal is. Um, yeah. It's one of the things yeah, well, that, that makes it so unique, yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of the connections to the Nagelfar stuff. Like, Hunengrab and Imherbst is very nature mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so we, we've talked a lot about the major key stuff, but I... <laughs> that's such a fucking cool riff. It doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense if you think about it on guitar. Oh, but it's speaking like, of which, that is going to bring me to my last non non extreme metal reference point. But I'll get to that at the end. Well, I wonder if it's the same one that I was about to bring up, which is I I fucking guarantee it's like there's certain riffs on this that I swear to God are like um like Super Nintendo chip tune type stuff. Well, that's related to what I was going to say, but it's not the same thing. Okay, because there's definitely stuff that it's like, this sounds almost like music from Sonic the Hedgehog or something. Oh my god, I was playing some part of the Nagelfar record, and my girlfriend was just like, that sounds like Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah, no. It might have been one of the keyboard melodies, but it might have been one of the riffs. It, It was just hilarious. I mean, I can totally see these guys being like, early adopters of like yeah yeah all these fucking video games we're playing let's let's throw some of that in there too man it Mm -hmm, works perfectly mm -hmm. um so anyway so yeah we've talked plenty about like the major key riffing and stuff and obviously that is the 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 giant unique centerpiece of the record however these guys never forget that they're a death metal band for too long um we don't sample a whole ton of the like more grinding and dissonant stuff but it's there and it's crucial because it's what gives the major key parts their their liveliness Mm -hmm. you know they have to be bursting out of shadow for them to have the the sort of gripping effect that they do um and also it's not just death metal this is fucking brutal death metal the the grinding blast beat passages are very extreme even for 2000 uh the vocals are purely cut from like lord worm cloth of just that like roaring bark like super Mm -hmm. guttural super intense uh, there's even there's passages that are like borderline slam riffs <laughs> across this, mm-hmm. and and sometimes they'll they'll jostle the ideas together so it's like this really gnarly sort of palm muted slam rhythm, but with those major key chord phrasings, resulting in just some of the weirdest sounding shit on the planet. I feel like the vocals are the only part of the record that you could say are maybe kind of incongruous with the themes. Like, I mean, otherwise, they basically just prove that there's no reason Brutal Death can't sound like this. It's kind of hard to figure out how uh, um, gory gutturals fit into this picture. <laughs> However, they they, they, they they don't really fit on a conceptual level, but they fit on a musical level, for sure. I, I guess I just think of it if I try to, if I try to come up with a, a justification for it, it's that... I, 
it conveys a sort of like animalistic life, you know, it, it, it conveys, you know, it is there to be intense and high energy. Oh, oh, oh I, like, no, I think that would be true. I think that that's, that's probably true. I, I, I guess I mean, like you could have any other kind of harsh vocal might make more sense here. Um, yeah, but I, I do think it, it fits the music most congruously. Yeah, and it also, yeah, it just sounds sick. And it's one of those <laughs> kinds of, you know, the whole record plays on this kind of unexpected juxtaposition. Like, what if this was that? And it, that's just like the most extreme version of it. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, sure, that is animal intensity. That can be sort of... Uh, an expression of life, you know, I, I get it. So yeah. I, I, I'm totally, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying like, uh, yeah, that's the one part. This is the one part of the record that like, this isn't an eccentric record. That's the one element of the record that you could say is a little bit eccentric, but it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mm. no, it's a, it's definitely a record that while it's very alien for most of what you experience, mm. it's, it's totally in touch with itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, so I did want to sample very distinctly a part that is very harsh on this record. Mm-hmm. So I want to go to the first couple minutes of Flowering Entities, which has some of the darkest material on the record. Um, and we're going to listen to basically an extended instrumental passage where a ton of shit happens. And through some of the most brutal stuff on the record, they find their way back to the major key in... A, a a convoluted but in no way forced series of incredible riff transitions. So, man, a 
ton happens there. Like, that's that's some of the most intense, like, kind of techie death grind stuff on the record. And it's amazing how they're able to very naturalistically develop all those super churning, really extreme ideas toward the rest of the song. Uh, I mean, this is this is one of the shorter tracks on the record. Um, and about the first half of it is just this extended instrumental passage that gives the band access to some of those major key melodies. Um, like in and of itself, just those first couple minutes are better thought out than almost anything you hear today. Uh, and again, didn't fucking realize it until we heard it again. It's the goddamn Elvenifrous theme again popping up as like the second riff of this song, you know, a variation on it again. How many is, do you think there's a variation of that on every song on the record? I don't know, but that wouldn't surprise me here. They've changed it because they've like inverted some things or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it sounds way more chromatic and death metal. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's in a, a radically different key. Um, yeah, no. So, but I, I just want to emphasize the thing is like this has such a reputation as being like flatly described as the happy death metal record. Like I said, you know, earlier on in the review, but there's such depth to what's going on. There's such such narrative depth in these song structures. There is so much intricate play in the contrast between, you know, harsh dissonance and really beautiful soaring major key stuff. And the the way in which these guys are able to 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 thrive on the abrupt transitions between those ideas is something that's really special. Um, and th- this is not like a you know it would be easier to do a track that was just like okay let's just do like a more death metal song right mm-hmm. and you could still fit that within the overall theme. It's like okay we're just gonna have a dark part. But, yeah. like, the this song, I mean, this is one of my favorites. It might be my favorite, but, like, it, it's, it's also a microcosm of the whole, right? Mm-hmm. That's another aspect of the organic structure thing. It's, uh, it, it's, it's significantly varied, but, like, by the time we get to that sort of cascading arpeggio thing, right? We are back in sort of like, you know, crisp clouds and rushing through a blue sky territory. Yeah. And it's, it, um, there is um, like, like it's, it's very economical, economic, economical, and yet it has some of the most, that is one of the most poignant moments on the record, really. Yeah, and I, I like that you point out that it would be very easy for them to say, let's just have a dark death metal track. But there's mm-hmm. an incredible commitment to the conceit of the idea of this record. This mm-hmm. is constructed in a very top-down way, which is usually a recipe for stuff that's really cool on a meta level and structurally, but is really unsatisfying moment to moment because it kind of loses the physical energy of the music. But in this case, they've managed to preserve that like pretty much completely, despite the fact that it's, this is operating like clearly like conceptually first. Um, I would, I would love to know how these songs were written yeah. like they're, cause they have such a jammy quality, but they seem like impossible to jam, you know? 
<laughs> I just I can't, I can't imagine what the writing process of this is like, especially considering that the goddamn appalling Spawn album came out in '98 and this came out two years later. It's um, watch the band be like, we can't either. <laughs> just like, like <laughs> this is this is a seventy minute record, and and it's, they just crushed through it in two years. I think actually it's seventy minutes with the bonus tracks. Or wait, no, it's eighty with icy. Yeah, yeah it really it's is eighty with the minutes. bonus tracks. Yeah, it really is seventy minutes. Yeah. Um, oh, and, oh, by the way, a, a quick aside that I didn't mention at the top. Um, to clarify, the samples that you're hearing and what we're listening off of are from the 2011 remastered version. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, uh, it's a really good remaster job. It's a little bit, it's brighter. It's got more tone color. It's louder and kind of wider, of course. But uh, if you guys, if you listen to the original version, it's very much intact. Uh, so I just wanted to note that for anyone who is wondering. Um, so yeah, there's, for people who like their death metal, death metal, there is plenty of that on this record, and it's executed masterfully as much as the crazy melodic stuff is. Um, so for my last sample, I want to bring up kind of the specter of black metal lurking in the background. Because what's interesting is uh, Tomas Korn, uh, as well as the keyboardist, the session keyboardist on this uh, on this record, who is the brother or the cousin of Petter, uh, I can't remember, um, actually ended up in Cult of Fire, uh, which uh, Tomas just left this year, but he was the drummer on basically that band's entire discography up until now. And based on, you know, the idea that, okay, guy's wearing the Dodheim's Guard shirt in one of those recent photos, there is, like, black metal lurking in the background of this. And it seems to have very subtly informed some of the decisions across this record, especially in the, uh, the synth work, which is pretty omnipresent. It's subtle, but it's continuous uh, across this. These sort of atmospheric, very, again... Um, 90s electronic style synth pads that provide a lot of lush texturing and some extra harmonic color. So I want to go to a step closer, which is part of like sort of a suite of three songs at the end of the record. They're some of the longer songs and they're clearly designed to function in a, a dovetailed way. So on a step closer, pay attention to uh, some of the more some of the most immediate and like primary synth stuff on the record cuz i think that mm-hmm. this has to indicate like a substantial influence from like symphonic and industrial black metal of the period
So, yeah, not only you pointed out that this is probably coming from like Arcturus, I would throw Borknagar into the ring there too, like early Prague Simph Black stuff. Yeah, um, Borknagar might be the more accurate reference point for all I know. You know? I, I think it could be any of them because they're, they're about mm-hmm. contemporary. Both of those really mm-hmm. start putting out stuff around 96. So mm-hmm. I, I think they're probably listening to all of it. Plus, there's also like a distinct like black metal riff in the middle of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Like within that sort of Swedish melodic black death milieu, like a, a simplified dissection or a sacramentum type riff figure. Oh, it's um, pretty complex. I think it's it's like it's contrapuntal, like some of the best. Uh, the melodies are kind of like sacramentum. It's got this really cool counterpoint going on. I feel like, yeah, that's like a, a cool, sophisticated Swedish black death riff. Yeah, no, it's it's really cool. It and it's immediate, and it but still, it doesn't break the flow of this Mm-mm. music at all. It feels completely natural, and the synth stuff that's going on is just outstanding. It, it's rare that the synths really step into the forefront of this record, but once you start hearing those those awesome sort of piano lines kicking in, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is this is great. And I love the the idea that so many elements on this record are used so sparingly and mm-hmm. used as moments of serious punctuation. Um, it just it really helps present this album as just this this very complete work. You know, there is no sense on this album that it would benefit from any modification. You know? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It's just, it is exactly what it is supposed to be. Um, And, you know, it's like, you know, I I wrote in the notes, this is such a strange record to talk about because extreme metal, for the most part, is not a genre that works like this. Um, it, it is not extreme metal is iterative in a, in a profound way. It, it is a constant process of like slowly expanding upon established tradition. It's vanishingly rare that you see something emerge that's so far outside of that conceit. And you wouldn't even want a, a plurality of records like that because they, we have a system in place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the fact that something well, like Well, also, this, if, if people could do that, they just would. Yeah, well, I, th- I think they could, but I think most people don't have good enough ideas to justify it. Well, no, that's what, that's what I mean. Like, if, yeah. you know, like most people cannot do it, and if they tried doing it, it would sound like garbage. I mean, you know, like metal is by and large more conducive to producing musical newness than uh, indie rock is because it's based on tradition rather than progress. Um, and indie rock ideas of progress means that everyone is always trying to one-up the bands before them and try to do something that nobody's heard before and try to progress between our second al- from our second album to our third. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, it, it means that there's very superficial kinds of... Um, games of uh genre mixing and matching and form exaggerating and it's a focus way more on new style than on the substance than on generating style out of substance right Mm -hmm. that's why you get all these bands that are not songwriting driven um and, and uh and so metal normally but this is so metal in part works because it's works because it's brings forth new stuff reliably because everyone's listening carefully to the tradition 
um, and in many ways trying to imitate it. This band has listened really carefully to the tradition, and they've just managed to bring forth something that is just like really, really unique. So, com- so completely fucking mm-hmm. left field. <laughs> yeah, this is. I guarantee, you, like, this was more progressive than like any indie record that. I mean, progressive. This is like more original than pretty much any indie rock that came out in two thousand. I don't know. Maybe Kid A. Yeah. Like. like <laughs> Um, uh, also, yeah, Kid A is also from 2000. Yeah. Oh, there you go. It was a, it was mm-hmm. a very good year. Um, also, uh, again, uh, Tomas Korn is just completely in fucking sicko mode here. Uh, I, I <laughs> fucking Tomas's fucking drum performance across this entire record is so, <laughs> so over energized in such mm-hmm. a cool way. It doesn't fucking matter if it's the most delicate, clean guitar passage in the world. He's going to just like grind out a hyper blast or some super intricate break beat over it. It just, it mm-hmm. never stops. It's so cool. <laughs> Yes. I, I don't have a good way to wrap up my my drifting monologue there apart from that. I, I love everything about this album, man. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, so, well, you know, this, the keyboards will segue to our, our last sample, I think. Um, we've got... Uh, so this is the one track on the... This is the... out. This is basically... You could call it the synth outro... But that's missing the point because it is um, uh, maybe the longest track. On, no, by far the longest track on the record. Yeah. Um, uh, it's called Walking in the Garden of Maat, who is the Egyptian goddess of the dead. Um, and this is the one track that's not written by Petra. Um, it seems like it's probably written. And it's not written by the session keyboardist either. It's written by... Uh, Yuri Tomanek, who I guess also eventually joined Cult of Fire, but long, long after the other guys were in Cult of Fire. Um, mm, okay, so this, yeah. he's also, a, he may have been doing electronic or keyboard-driven stuff, and that's not listed on Metal Archives yeah, for him, it, would be my guess. There's a lot of strange lineup questions yeah. I have about this whole record. Yeah, he's like... You know, his this guy's work on keyboards is fantastic and very different from symphonic metal keyboards. Uh, it's a lot more like Cosmish music or neoclassical or the most neoclassical parts of a Coil record. Um, and uh, so let's listen to this. Um, the album is going here is the interesting thing, right? We were talking before about... Uh, you know, virtue or goodness being concrete, right? Like actual personality characteristics or just a actual place, right? Uh Um, Here's the actual place.
so on a musical level, uh, what you said during the while well, we were listening obviously holds true. <laughs> that it that it wipes the floor with all dungeon synth ever. <laughs> yeah, I can't really. Th- I mean, honestly, the first Mortis is surprisingly sophisticated and cool. Oh, but, that's, that's, uh, that's that predates dungeon synth. That's true. That that's true. Count, By dungeon yeah. synth, we mean the things that are mocking those things. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Yes, this is absolutely crushes all of Dungeon Synth. Um, uh, it's, I mean, yeah, that's a fucking piece of music. Um, uh, well, who I, knows well, where that guy is now? Well, it's awesome because it, um, it's major key and yet it floats without resolution. You know, it's, it's That's where I was going. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm sorry to scoop you. Go for it, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's all. It's what's good that I have independently verified results. Um, <laughs> it is. So it gestures towards like, um, you get to these, this sort of a, a classic yearning kind of figure that yearns towards res- resolution at around the three minute three minutes into it mm-hmm. and then again about 30 seconds before the end you get that da, 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 right and there are things like that that are kind of like there that that's drawing on stuff in wagner you could trace it back to like say stuff in tristan um these longing longing falling themes uh and but it becomes a trope in film music and things mm-hmm. like that and there it's much closer to film music or even to sort of like schlocky pop music, mm-hmm. um, right? And you, you sort of, there's a moment where like, the first time I heard this, I was like, oh, is it about to get bad? <laughs> like, is it about to like do the schmaltzy resolution that it is that it could go to? And it resolves... But in this sort of just powerful descend to root note way, and then just immediate, almost just as it's resolving, there is immediately this like noble ascending melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that climbs in the way that certain this like really sort of elegant processional sounding stuff in say, a coil record, like First Five Minutes After Death, or um, uh, there's a correspondent, the Golden uh, Coil, the Gold... What's, what is it, the Golden what? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely got that kind of crypto martial industrial thing going on. I was going to say, that's... <laughs> weirdly, that's almost the most warlike part on the record. Yeah. That, that is... That's, that's like a very sort of... Even though it's major key, that's a very martial, stern melody. Um, but it's it's happiness, um, and that passes us up into another section of these sort of sighing, gliding, uh, lingering chords, and then it does it again. And at the end, there as we cut out, it's just sort of like blossoming. It sort of resolves, but in this kind of like really active way. So we never get this sort of like stupid, sugary payoff kind of riff that is. Uh, that like, I don't know, is now somehow endemic in black metal of all places. Uh, and what else is to be said about it? Well, this track exemplifies what you mean about shades of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that you know it it expresses through the way it's composed 
you know, again, the sort of rejection of the the popular concept of happiness uh, as is expressed in music or as is expressed culturally in a lot of places that happiness and goodness are not things that are consumed and disposed of it. The melody does not conclude mm-hmm. in the way we imagine it because it is a, a state that can be eternal. That's something. Yeah. So this is gets it something else I want to talk about. So on the one hand, right. You've got this, well, we're talking about vulnerability here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't just mean like, vulnerable in the sense of like willing to open yourself up and sh- you know part of part of vulnerability that you'd have throughout the record is like boldness right yeah. daring part of it's also willing to risk things in talking about things that make you vulnerable right yeah. or it's, it's 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 its own form of bravery and, you know yeah yes absolutely so there's that there's that kind of bravery that allows intimacy with with people right um and this last track is very much about intimacy this is the kind of happiness that you experience with your maybe with your family or with your you know your true love Mm -hmm. this is you know with people who are very close to you um and so there's those kinds of vulnerability, and there's also this kind of like metaphysical vulnerability. There's all this other kind of vulnerability, which is like, you know, I mean, obviously most of us listening to this are in some degree of the depressing, depressed scale. Uh, I mean, the death metal guy and I, I think, are both pretty high in our own ways on that <laughs> scale. Um, uh, you know, uh, death metal guy has had crippling major depression. I'm just depressed every day. Right? I'm dysthymic. Um, but the, uh, it's sort of, although you just had major depression every day, um, for, for years. Um, you know, we were, but the point is like, we're very in tuned to a kind of darker side of the world. Um, and embracing that darker side of the world is one way of uh, dealing with suffering, right? Not running from it and seeking happiness or it's not running from it through utopianism or through cowardice or whatever. You sort of find, you affirm the possibility, you, you know, you affirm the strife and violence and, possi- and the loss that's in the world, right? And you're able to just be, you're able to be very, you have this, you find this center to you and you can bear pretty much anything or anything really. Uh, And that's the black metal way of being, you know, uh, that's a, a, a black metal way of existing. But there are other kinds of strength, right? And they're also important and complementary and, um... You know, if you're, you can like, at least, maybe I'm being kind of personal here, but like for me at least, uh, a certain kind of happy music has been difficult because I've always thought of the impermanence of those states. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like very, especially music like this that could be sort of tender, sweet, that can evoke sort of childhood, gentleness, um, uh things that um 
I, I don't know, things that might seem states that might seem passing and sort of uh, e- ephemeral and sort of like put away as we've yeah. gotten older. Yeah. And, and, and also harder to find as you get older and also sort of threatened by things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's in if it's in romance, right? Maybe threatened the, the the threat of loss, right? Losing this person or whatever, right? And and more, but more than that, like even just in the most basic way that, like, you know, uh, things from the world are constant. Even if you just have a good, very a wonderful, very steady thing, things in the world are constantly threatening that happiness and stability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're constantly going to be faced with troubles and with uh, all sorts of and problems and you know you're not always going to be at your best mentally. Sometimes you'll just be you know I, I tend to be extraordinarily negative as a reflexive thing. So do you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's our um, it's our automatic. It's our it's, yeah. Paradoxically, it's our comfort zone. You know. Exactly, it's a paradoxical comfort zone, and like you know. Uh, Give me, you know, a thought of something going well and I'll think of it going wrong, right? Or give me, you know, (laughs) anything like that. And to some degree, right, there can be, there are healthy ways that, you know, you can be, you know, the black metal thing of, you know, uh, understanding that shit can go wrong and that that's not a complaint against the world and that it will go wrong. But there's this other way of just being reflexively negative, which makes it hard to enjoy things. And can be a kind of fear. Oh, I can't have the happy thing because it might be impermanent, right? I don't want to linger on that because that'll just remind me of happy things I had in the past. It will, it'll exacerbate um, my disappointment when worse comes to worst. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't want to get too excited about this. Yeah, I, I don't want to like linger on happy music because the world's not a happy place and I need to be ready for anything. Right. And, uh, um, and turning into <laughs> turning into fucking Henry Rollins, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind. Of, yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> fucking Henry Rollins, what a joke. <laughs> um, but the um, uh, but yeah, we, we in our in our sprawling philosophical music review, we always have time to make fun of Henry Rollins. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so. I, I hope people that gives people an idea of what I mean that like there's like a a vulnerability there's a there's maybe like I don't know as stupid as it sounds a guys like us can have a fear of being happy oh yeah and I think I I I certainly have I mean I have had that and to some degree I still have it uh, but oh, much less yeah. than I used to <laughs> yeah much less than I used to uh and this record is about, and, you know, I've always been able to embrace, like, say, right, you know, the fearsome happiness in black metal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, you know, like the battle joy or the sort of, um, or the sort of, like, uh, triumphant force of nature or whatever like that, obviously, right? Yeah. But, like, you know, like, Odal is happy, right? Because, but Odal's- yeah, because that's couched in, uh, it's, it's couched in concepts of sort of strength and aggression that we're used to kind of dealing with yeah. things through yeah exactly it's not yes it, that that is a you can say that some of that stuff is happy um but it's 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 still within this sort of uh you know uh martial and sort of force driven worldview but this is this is just like tender and intimate and sweet and vulnerable and there are this song is about like being in the afterlife, right? 
whether you're contacting it for a moment or just getting there, there are feelings of nostalgia, I think, here. Like, or like, or at least sort of, you know, like looking back on the past, which is, and, and having some satisfaction in it. There's feelings of like, yeah, just extreme gentleness and tenderness, yearning. But here, all of those feelings are also being gratified. Um, and I think that's, that's the other important thing, right? If this record were just about, if, if this song, say, suggested just impermanence, right, then it would be capital R romantic and very modern. Mm-hmm. It would be like, oh, all we have is these passing joys and we have to appreciate them and maybe we can preserve them in imagination and art or aspire to them. And that would be that whole kind of, that's that whole kind of moralistic worldview we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but this is different. This record and this, tr- and this track in particular affirms that some things say the kind of high happiness that you have with your true love or your family or maybe your closest friends is that is not lost some things are not lost and certainly that is not um and this record sort of affirms the existence of this you know uh abiding permanent world that can burst through into our own 